This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Steroid CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 147, and today I sat down with Chris Gallant, the CEO of Chamberlain Coffee. Founded by social media influencer Emma Chamberlain, Chamberlain Coffee is a high-quality, sustainably sourced organic coffee roasted in California. Available in single-serve bags, instant sticks, ground and whole bean options, Chamberlain Coffee is symbolized by different characters to encapsulate the different coffee drinkers in all of us. Chris shares his story from growing up in Boston with dreams of becoming a lawyer, to attending Bentley College and becoming a software engineer, to earning his MBA at MIT and becoming a consultant at Bain and Company, to starting his first company, the Bronx Brewery, to working on strategy at Red Bull, to getting contacted by a recruiter to become the CEO of Chamberlain Coffee. Chris and I talk about his experience with imposter syndrome, how he defines his leadership style, and what it's like running a talent-led brand. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us a review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com, where you can catch up on past episodes and read product reviews on our blog. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us on the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm excited to hear your story and becoming CEO of Chamberlain Coffee. Thanks so much for your time today and joining us. Yes. Thank you for having me. You're calling from Los Angeles. Where in LA are you? I am in Santa Monica right now. Oh, nice. Awesome. I'm just right over the mountain, Topanga Canyon area. It's actually called Woodland Hills. All right. So where are you from originally? Are you from the California area? I am not. I am an East Coaster. I grew up in Boston and was there for the first call it, 27 years of my life. Managed to get rid of the accent, though, mostly. Right? I know. You should try it. Why don't you should give us like a little Boston accent word, especially coffee, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll have some coffee or maybe later tonight I'll have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like growing up in Boston? Obviously, pretty cold. But beyond that, what was it like? Did you have siblings? What your parents like? What they do? Yeah, uh, we'll start way back at the beginning. Sure. I have one sister who actually now lives here in Los Angeles with me. You've recruited her over. That's amazing. Yes, exactly. No, but we, you know, we grew up in Boston. You know, we grew up in a middle class suburb just north of the city, kind of the last stop on the subway. My father was a contractor. So he did, 
you know, home and commercial construction for most of my life. And then went and did the same thing for large corporations. One of those were, was Starbucks, maybe, you know, hearkening to my, my future in coffee. And my mother was a paralegal. So yeah, we had a great childhood growing up just outside the city. After that, went to a small regional college called Bentley, just outside of Boston, and worked for a couple years after that as a software engineer before I realized. Before we like, dive wow. into before we dive yeah. into the career stuff, I want to focus more on little Chris. So what was right, it like? It. Yeah, I want to hear. Tell me what you wanted to be when you grew up. When you were a kid, what did you want to be? Yeah, strangely, a lawyer. <laughs> My really? mother being a paralegal. Yeah, okay. I was around the law offices quite a bit. So. Yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. Why? Other than mom is so cool, like what was it about that maybe experience or what you saw from her that you thought was so interesting? You know, I thought it was fun representing different clients. Actually, in high school, I was part of the mock trial team. So I spent a bunch of time actually in courtrooms with judges pretending to be sort of one side or the other on a case. So yeah, I had a great time. And, you know, it, it wound up pursuing a different path, but that was my goal. That is hilarious. I think you're the only one on the show so far out of like 140 guests plus that had dreams of being a lawyer as a little kid. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, my counsel right now is probably laughing thinking about it. <laughs> I might hire you as my counsel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's funny. So what about sports and other activities? And also just from a leadership perspective, you know, you're a leader now, you're a CEO. Do you looking back on your childhood, do you find moments of that kind of shining through? That's a really interesting question. I did, I think I tried every sport out there, but the one that really stuck with me being from Boston probably was was hockey, right? I just mm-hmm. played hockey my whole life from the time I was a little kid through high school. I had exchange programs with a little town outside of Montreal, so would go up and, and stay with a family up there and play hockey up there. Thinking about like leadership, that's a really fascinating question. I've never really thought about leadership moments in sort of those specific things. I think one thing that really stuck with me, sort of this well-roundedness of trying out lots of different things, trying out baseball, trying out basketball, trying out Boy Scouts. I was in that for quite a long time too. But it sounds like you didn't really stick with much. So was this like trying and failing experiences you're mentioning or what? (laughs) Some of it, right? I wasn't too great at soccer, but I wouldn't say it was trying and failing. I think it was sort of finding what you like and not being afraid to try new things. And I think that learning something from each piece was really useful. Like what? Well, for sports, right? Learning different things you could apply to other sports. Thinking about hand-eye coordination in baseball, right? Thinking about athletic ability in soccer. I think that was really helpful and helped people be a better, well-rounded athlete. I think it's one of the challenges today. And we, want, we don't have to dive too deep in that, but in kids' sports, right? Is that the kids play the same sport year-round, right? They don't kind of get that balance from everything else. Every sport you play, and I know this because I have two kids, it's a year-round thing now. Right. No, I remember that as a kid. It's like all the kids that did the year round soccer became really good. And all of a sudden in high school, I was like, wait a minute, why are they so good? (laughs) They got really good over time, like doing it year round. I obviously wasn't able to keep up with my little summer leagues or whatever I was doing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, wow, they're uh, pretty damn good at this sport. (laughs) I think I'm going to opt out on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's healthy to do lots of lots of different things and get to get different perspectives to do. You know, I really like to do individual sports. I was a swimmer as well. What was your stroke on, on swimming? Freestyle. Really? Freestyle? Yeah. Okay. I was a backstroker. I like to do the okay. backstroke. Just okay. Cruise. But yeah, I think I think it's important. You learn different lessons in each thing, right? You learn There's a different type of mentality you have to have when you're doing an individual sport, like swimming versus a team sport, like hockey. Absolutely. Right? 
know, hockey is you got to sit back. I play defense and really take a look at the entire ice in front of you and see the play unfold and make the play happen. Yeah. Versus when you're swimming, it's just a, it's a very different thing, right? You're trying to beat your personal best time. Right. You don't know what the hell is going on around you. You're just trying to stay focused. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we can go back to kind of where you were after college and what were some of the first few jobs that you had? Yeah. Yeah. We can can go back there. It's it's probably a short journey. I was a a software engineer. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I was in college from 98 to 2002, and that was right at the height of the first couple of years of the internet boom. Right. And yeah. I think I saw that and I really decided I wanted to be a software engineer because that's where I thought there was a lot of money to be made and didn't really pay attention to the fact that I didn't enjoy coding and I wasn't great at it. Software boom busted or the internet boom busted. The only job I could get was as a software engineer for an insurance company, you know, hour outside the city. And I took it and yeah, I realized don't really enjoy it. I'm not very good at it. So maybe I should find something else to do. I met some really great people up there that I'm still friends with now, 20 something years later, but that that path wasn't for me. So what did you do? What happened? You're kind of at this job you don't like, then what? Yeah, I decided I need to go back to school. I need to do do something else. I need to go back, figure out what it is I can do, what it is I want to do. I I spent four years learning about computer science, worked as a software engineer, I, I didn't have enough of a worldview yet. I think that's one of the challenge. I went to a regional university that had more of a regional view and not a worldview. And so mm. I thought when I go back to school, I, I really need, I really want to be with people that have been everywhere, have done everything. Yeah. And so when I went back, I was fairly selective with what I was trying to do. I wound up going to the Sloan School of Management at MIT, which which is exactly what I wanted to do. It, it really opened up my worldview. There were people coming from all around the world that had wildly different experiences, right? We had yeah. our standard consultants and investment bankers. We had sort of Olympic athletes. We had people coming from from every walk of life. It was really amazing to kind of jump in and see the opportunities that were available. I think really the big thread that I found at MIT, I hadn't seen anywhere, is this willingness to take risks and to do anything, right? And it's sort of interesting, I think, when Maybe when you grow up in a middle-class background, your, your sort of willingness to take risks isn't quite there as much. Yeah, definitely. Not a big safety net, right? And so the right. willingness for people to take risks is a little bit different. And I think what I found with some of the folks at MIT is even if they had come from that background, they just had this thing in them where they said, you know what, like what's the worst that could happen, right? What that amounted to were people that just had had phenomenal careers or really interesting experiences a lot of entrepreneurs, right? So that risk-taking, risk-loving nature. And so it was really, it was great to be surrounded by people like that. And it really sparked that in me. That's awesome. And so, well, MIT, speaking of the middle class, right? I mean, going to MIT is not very middle class. I would beg to differ, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's a class thing there. I mean, there are people really from everywhere. And I think MIT does a great job with scholarships as well. But I, you know, they're, they're oh, you motto, got a scholarship, right? you said. No, no, I didn't. I had loans coming out of that. <laughs> okay, okay. Plenty of loans coming out of that. But I think, you know, the motto of MIT, right, translated from Latin is mind and hand, right? And it's all about sort of strategic thinking, but also tactically doing things. And that's pervasive, not just in the business school, right, but across the entire school. It's really interesting because that really sets up people well for entrepreneurship. 
Absolutely. So were you like, hey, I'm going to be an entrepreneur now? Or what was your first gig from there? Yeah, no, I I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I had no idea how to do it. So I, I wasn't quite risk-taking enough yet. So I think I took a safer path. I went to work for Bain Consulting. I had a great time there. I worked for them for over three years in their New York office, mostly within the consumer goods group. So I knew that I wanted to be in the consumer goods world. I knew that I had worked in insurance and I had worked in sort of the software function, but I needed some more experience in consumer. And so I went to work for Bain and spent a couple of years doing that. Worked for everything from canned foods to restaurants to beer, which is where I sort of transitioned into my next role. So I had worked in beer. I think I had the most coveted job in the office. I was down working for a large brewery in their Caribbean operations, uh, helping with distribution on different Caribbean islands. That was a pretty sweet gig. So you were hanging out on a Caribbean island is what you're telling me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Hence the coveted job. The coveted, yes. So I spent a, a bit of time in the Bahamas thinking about how to Drinking distribute beer. beer. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that I, I did not... that. That was... Yeah, right. just, I'm, I'm just going to let you know, I've had a lot of CEOs on this show that talk about going that route in consulting and none yeah. of them are drinking beer on an island. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was, was, it, was experience. it was a pretty good experience. I enjoyed it so much. I wound up leaving Bain. I went to work for Heineken on their M&A team and then moved down to Sao Paulo for a couple of years. And we acquired a large Latin American brewery. And so spent a few years on diligence and spent a few years then working on the marketing team after. That's awesome. So you were able yeah. to like finagle your way with beer and islands and, you know. <laughs> yeah, further. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So you were at Heineken for like two years uh, and then you yep. went over to Red Bull. Tell us about that transition. Well, I went from Heineken. I decided that's actually where I made my jump to entrepreneurship. I, I went and started a brewery. I moved from Brazil back to New York and started a brewery in the Bronx. That was the next step there. I stayed in the world of beer. Oh, nice. So you have the Bronx Brewery that you launched. Yeah. That's basically your first company, your first startup. What were some of the challenges that you faced in building that business? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I think, I mean, geez, like what, what challenge didn't we face, right? I hadn't, I hadn't done any of it, right? And I think I went into it maybe a little naive, right? In that I've worked in the beer space before and know how to do that. And I think working for the third largest brewer in the world is a lot different than starting your own brewery. And so everything from just these administrative tasks, right, of, of structuring a company and the best way to do it for the best financial outcome of everybody uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, how to operate it in the best way to raising funds was certainly a challenge to just operating, right? And so my partner and I, because I started it with another guy, we decided early on, we, were, we, we wanted to kind of ro roll through all the different jobs at the company mm -hmm. so we could really understand from the ground up how it works. And so, you know, I spent the first two years helping him brew beer because he was a brewer. I drove a delivery truck around New York City, got chased out of kitchens by chefs because I delivered at the wrong time. Like <laughs> it, it really learned it from the ground up. And so we talked about the challenges. It was really everything. That's awesome. True startup yeah. life, driving a truck yes. in New York City. Good luck with trying to find parking and unload the truck, right? No, a lot of tickets. A lot of tickets, yeah. <laughs> well, what you need is your co-founder to be in the passenger seat and you, you know, let him just drive around the block while you... <laughs> that, ha that happened a lot, yeah. That's funny. 
So, you know, tell us, I guess, about what happened. It looks, so were you at Red Bull kind of in between that or what does that fit in the timeline here? I went to Red Bull. I sold that brewery in 2017 and then went to work for Red Bull after that. And there was a bunch of former Bain guys that had been at Red Bull. That's where I landed, moved out to California to do that. Oh, so that's how you got to Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah. Nice. You were just at Red Bull for about a year. How did that go? What were some of the challenges or things you learned there, lessons learned? And what happened after that? Yeah. So Red Bull was was really my first job in non-alcoholic beverages, which is vastly different than selling in beer or, or alcohol mm-hmm. or wine. And so it was great to see that side of the market and really understand the dynamics of how that works. I think the other thing that's been that was really great about Red Bull, because I worked on their strategy team there, is thinking of like, how do you take this storied brand and continue to make it really exciting and sort of keep new cohorts of consumers excited about it? Because it, it's you know still growing at an amazing clip, despite the fact that it's, I think it's the number two brand of beverage in the US right now, or number three, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow. So yeah. it's really impressive how they're able to do that. What is the secret? How do they do that? A couple of things. One is focus, right? And they focus really well on their hero skew, right? And mm-hmm. they focus on that eight ounce can. And, you know, they've expanded to multi-packs and they've expanded to different sizes and the flavors, but they really stay laser focused on that blue and silver can. And I think yeah. that allows them to continue to drive velocity. I think the other thing they do very well is brand, right? And brand awareness plays. They've been very innovative. Yes, they have sort of traditional out of home and everything, but they're also very innovative with the Flutog or other events that just draws a ton of awareness, like the jump from space. I don't know if you remember that one when the guy jumped from a hot air balloon that was in space down to the earth, sponsored by Red Bull all over his helmet, right? Tons of brand awareness plays. Right. And then just distribution. They they have they built their own distribution network, which is incredibly strong. And they just have this muscle that they flex and able to get it on shelf. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing those points. It sounds like you learned a lot and it was fun to be in the non-alk world for about a year. Yeah. And then where'd you go from there? Yeah, from there I went on to Kombucha. So I worked in that space for a little while as well for a company that was actually based back on the East Coast. And dived even deeper into non-alchemy, into sort of the health and wellness space. It's an interesting space. There is, I joined at a time when kombucha was just expanding, right? And you'd see, if you've gone to the Whole Foods here in Venice, right? There's 30, 35 feet of kombucha at the grocery store. (laughs) Right. But there's, you know, now a lot of interesting other products coming up, like Poppy or Olipop or other functional beverages that are starting to eat into the kombucha world. I think, you know, kombucha is here to stay, but what I found is like, it's, it's really shrinking. So those companies either need to, you know, there's going to be a few winners, but the ones that are on the edge may need to innovate their way to growth. So how did you get into the coffee category? Yeah. So I, you know, I was looking for my next opportunity and I was looking for a category that was larger, that was continuing to grow, that continued to have new consumers come into it. And so it was trying to figure out what that was. And then a recruiter called me to take a look at Chamberlain Coffee. Now they were a small brand at the time and say, hey, we need someone who's been in the food and best space in the US. Can you take a look at this? And so I met the team. I thought the team was was phenomenal. I saw the growth numbers. And then I met Emma, just saw how passionate she was about the business and how much she was behind it. 
And so when was this and how big was the team at the time? And what did the growth look like at the time? Like what were some of those dynamics? Yeah. So the team was just a couple of people. This was in summer of 2021 that I met them. Team was just a couple of people growing, you know, like a hundred percent a year off a small base. Right. And was mainly direct to consumer business and said, Hey, like, I I think we need to start going into retail. And I think we need to start expanding our product line beyond coffee bags. And so that's, that's when I came in and really said, all right, like, look, I think you got the right vision. Uh, We need to start innovating and having more products come out. And we've had some of those and they've done really, really well. Some different teas we've put out, some different flavored coffees, different coffee formats, but then retail was so important to us, right? And I know that it's exciting to be a D2C business, but if you look at where most people still buy their coffee, right? Still on a weekly basis, on their grocery trip, right? It's like this ritualistic thing. So if we're going to be a, become a big company, we need to be where people are buying their coffee every week. And so that's been the big push for me is to get into retail. And how's that going so far? Good. We, you know, we just launched in Sprouts at the end of last year. That was our first national chain. We've got Congrats. a bunch of other smaller chains. Thank you. We get some other smaller ones around here in California. And we have a much bigger launch coming that we'll announce probably in April. It'll be on shelves in mid-April. Great. So it sounds na- like nationwide launch. Amazing. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, congratulations to you guys getting on retail shelves. That's no small feat. It sounds like, I guess, what stage in like from a fundraising perspective, were they on earlier when before you joined? And then as you joined, I'm sure you yeah. had to fundraise. So where did you have to take them next? Yeah. So when I joined, they had raised seed money from a venture studio and that studio put in human capital as well to help build it. And then where I took it was, all right, we need to, as we think about retail, it's obviously it's, it's expensive. And so we raised the series A and we also tacked on some venture debt to that as well. And you had kind of fundraised before with your brewery, right? So fundraising wasn't something completely new for you. No, I'd done it at the brewery and I'd done it with the kombucha company and I'd done it with a few other companies I consulted for. So Mm -hmm. the fundraising scene is familiar to me. That's always helpful. Yes. (laughs) Because I'm sure with the brewery or anything else that you experienced in your first go round with fundraising, I imagine it was an interesting challenge early on. There's sort of the admin slash logistics side of it, right? When you think about what's the best way to structure this for for everyone involved, right? For like the employees, for current shareholders, for future shareholders, what's the most attractive piece that kind of checks all boxes. But then also understanding and thinking about, you know, what are investors looking for and making sure you're finding the investor that's looking for the same thing as you are. Like that alignment is so key. Is this an investor that's going to fund continued growth? Is this an investor that wants to see profitability right away? Is this someone that wants to hold for the long term or someone that wants to flip it? Like finding that alignment has been so key in any fundraise we've done. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. 
So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So what were you looking for among those things? And what would you advise, you know, other founders building businesses to consider? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things we look for and will continue to look for in future races is like, I think someone that understands consumer goods, because it's very different than tech, right? Yeah. It requires a lot of investment upfront. To be able to launch into a major retailer requires capital and it requires cash. To be able to fund a production run requires, you know, your order to cash management is so long. It could be five or six months from when you're buying raw materials to when you actually see cash for finished goods you've made. So getting someone that understands your industry, for me, food and beverage was, was really important. And then the other thing is we wanted someone who's aligned with our vision, right? We think we can be, you know, we're, we're sort of aiming to be the next beverage company for Gen Z, right? Thinking about coffee and tea, which we have now and other beverages, which we'll go into, right? We think we're well positioned to just be that company for folks. So I think that gives us an opportunity to be quite big and getting a, a, an investor that's aligned with that. It's important. And so I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is this your first CEO official title or role? Yeah, I guess it's the first time I've been CEO as president or co-president at the brewery. But yeah, this is the first CEO title. And so when you were kind of, you know, considering taking on this fun and exciting job, I guess, did you have any limiting beliefs when you were kind of considering? Were you a little nervous? Tell us how you kind of felt early on. Yeah, of course, right? I mean, I think anyone that's told you that they didn't is is it's probably lying. I was speaking on stage with the panel a few months ago and there was uh, another CEO up there who told me like, who spoke to the, the group and said, I've never had imposter syndrome. I've always felt like I belong. And I was like, well. What? Are you serious? <laughs> he was, he was quite young. I said, well, just, just wait. Like, <laughs> spoken like only like a very young person could. But no, I mean, look, I think <laughs> imposter syndrome, right, is always very real. It's hard, right? You know, when you're doing a lot of things that you haven't done before, like certainly I've been an executive in the beverage space, but every day you're doing new things, right? And so it's it's certainly a challenge, right? But you as a CEO have to have all the answers. Or if you don't, you have to figure out how to go get them. 
quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I've been fortunate enough, you know, at this company, we have a lot of great advisors from different aspects of the business. So there's a lot of people I can ping internally. Yeah. And then just having been in the beverage space for so long, I have a lot of personal advisors and, and friends uh, that I can rely on to ask questions to. That's awesome and very important. And I also yes. think that if you're not feeling imposter syndrome, then maybe you're just not challenging yourself enough. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Because I actually, even though it's pretty intimidating and scary to feel that, I think it, it's an important feeling to have. It means you're going outside of your comfort zone. It means you're not sure if you're capable of pulling it off. And that's an exciting thing to be taking on. I actually only like those kind of challenges. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's tough. It's tough in the moment, but no, yeah, yeah it's, I love it. It makes you feel alive, you know? Yes. Like, can we do this? Yes, we can. I don't know, but we're going to try. So how have you grown personally and professionally as a leader? That's a great question. One of those things that you do, right, is you challenge yourself, right? And you put yourself in situations where you know, you're forced to figure out how to do things, right? And I, it's one of the things, right, you learn when you're a consultant as well, right? You get thrown into a situation where you, you have no idea how to solve this problem, but, you know, you have to dig in and figure it out. So one of the ways I've personally grown is, is sort of I put myself in situations where I'm uncomfortable. I think the other thing I like to think about, right, not just sort of how, how do I grow up, but like in what have I done differently as I've been a leader? I'd like to think that over time, I've learned to think about people more, right? When I first started my business on my own, right, there's, you know, you're just hustling, right? There's sort of less of a focus on people and that's mm -hmm. a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. And it sort of is a mistake I didn't learn, I think, for a long time. So I really try to think about people first now. If you think about people first, other things will fall into place. It's so true. I'm guilty of the same thing with my first company. And it was like, you just got the world on your shoulders, you know, when you're bootstrapping and you're yeah. just trying to hustle to make a business work in the first place. You're expecting, I think, also your team to be taking the kind of, I don't know, salary cut and everything else that you're you're taking in the trenches. And it's really yeah. hard to ask that of people. It is, right? And I think, you know, the other the other thing that I think has been really important to the way I think about leadership is sort of, there's a lot of different styles of leadership. Yes. I think one thing I found that that doesn't work for me, and I've tried it before, but it's sort of consensus-driven decision-making where things are a democracy. I think at a startup, things move so quickly. You can certainly source opinions from everybody, but there needs to be somebody in the room making a decision to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of times where, hey, the wrong decision is probably better than no decision. Mm-hmm. Right. To just keep the ball moving forward. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. How would you describe your leadership style? I think part of it is sort of that I like to, that piece about consensus, right? I certainly like to source opinions from people. I like to understand how different decisions will impact people, but move forward on decisions as opposed to consensus-driven organizations. That's one of them. I think the other people, the other thing is sort of a focus on people development as much as possible. And sometimes at a startup, that's not always possible, right? Because there's just not enough hands on deck, but I like to try to focus on people. So what is it like working with a major influencer? I think Emma Chamberlain has like 16.2 million mm -hmm. Instagram followers. This is like celebrity status, right? So what is it like right. working with someone who's probably very creative? She's very influential. This is her company. What's it like working together? I think it's great. We kind of represent two different sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. She is like, as you said, very creative, right? And sort of I'm much more 
business operations oriented and you need both to operate the company. And I think we've found a balance over time that works really well for us. It's really important I think, for any celebrity or talent led brand to have that deep level of involvement that Emma has with us, right? We're constantly on the phone talking about, you know, retail strategy, innovation pipeline, what does our Instagram look like? You know, she's joining for meetings with different retailers. That's so important to have yeah. because although some of that stuff is not consumer facing, it's not you know, ha- having her post on her Instagram, that mm-hmm. the ethos is still felt through the brand. And I think some of the talent-led brands that maybe lose their way, it's sort of, they don't have that continued connection on an ongoing basis. So because of that, we still feel this level of, of authenticity or the brand still has this level of authenticity. Um, but yeah, having that close working relationship is key. Absolutely. That sounds like it's definitely a big, valuable part of the partnership. And I'm, I agree with you. I'm sure there's a lot of talent-led brands where they don't have that much involvement. Is this her only company? So is it maybe possible that she has that more focus because this is her first and only business? Or does she have other companies that she or products that she's launched? This is her only company that she has. She certainly works with a lot of other brands out there, but right. this is her only company. And I think it's a big passion for her. So it's great. It's inspiring to the rest of the team too, to see her so involved in the brand. Absolutely. That's awesome. And as far as the story of her story and starting this and before your involvement, can you mm-hmm. kind of help with that story of maybe how she came up with this idea and why she wanted to make a change in the coffee space? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The story is I'll do my best to retell it as she does, but you know, she yeah. grew up in California, spending a lot of time in coffee shops with her folks and just really fell in love with the beverage, like as an actual beverage, but also as sort of a way to bring people together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, eventually she talked about it quite a bit on her channels as she grew as a creator and eventually went to her team and said, Hey, I'd really like to start my own coffee brand. Can you help me? And they, they put out a product. It sold like crazy. They put out more, it sold like crazy. And I said, we, we think there's something there. And so that's when they brought in uh, a venture studio called Blazer Capital that helped say, okay, like let's let's take this product that everyone's loving so much and let's build it out into a full brand. Let's create different products. Let's create these fun, unique, interesting little animal characters that we have. Let's create yeah. personalities for them. Let's let's build out this whole brand. And so they spent about a year doing that together with Emma and then brought me into. That's awesome. Yeah. The names are really funny. I mean, careless cat blend. I mean, (laughs) or the uh, night owl blend, as I assume, if you're out late and you are waking up in the morning, you need that night owl extra boost of caffeine. Yeah, exactly. We create a whole little backstories for them. Like, you know, the social dog has FOMO, right? Just like doesn't doesn't want to miss out anything. And the careless cat has JOMO, the joy of missing out wants to stay at home. Right. And so I think that sort of that quirky funniness has resonated with consumers. And I think Emma's done a great job just directing all the creative there and saying like, all right, like everything on the shelf at retail is is brown, right? Literally, if you go, if you go to the grocery store, all the coffee is in shades of brown on the shelf and wear bright colors with these funny and quirky characters. The coffee is super premium. It's, you know, rated 82 and above. It's organic, locally roasted here in LA, sourced from like you know, sustainably farmed collectives in Latin America. So the quality is super high. Otherwise people wouldn't come back for it, but just to grab people off the shelf, we have these bright, fun, colorful characters. 
It's awesome. Yeah, I love that it's organic. And I don't know much about the history of when anybody decided to put coffee into a tea bag, but I love that idea. And it's just like such common sense, but I feel like what a great idea and fun way to ha- enjoy coffee. And so I've been enjoying some yeah. of them myself. So I've, I love it. Yeah, that's um, most great. of our consumers use that for a cold brew, oh. not for hot coffee. Yeah. So we found through some studies and communication with our consumers that 90% of them drink cold coffee. And so most wow. of the products that we've been innovating have been oriented around cold brew, right? I mean, it's not that different though. If you look at ours tends to be, you know, because we have a younger consumer, they tend to drink more cold brew. But even if you look at publicly traded companies like Dutch Bros or Starbucks, north of 70% of the drinks that they're producing are cold drinks now. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So you've been CEO for about two years. Just curious, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome as CEO of the business? Yeah. Uh, again, there's so there's so many challenges. I know there's like daily challenges, right? But I'm yeah. talking about the big monsters that come out of nowhere or whatever and kind of knock you over and you have to pick yourself back up. Yeah, of course. I think one of the hard things right, to overcome is we were a D2C business and you know, the past, since we started, we were D2C, right? And with all of the changes that are being made within Google and within Meta about how ads work, right? All yeah. of a sudden, our efficiencies went down real quickly in terms of how efficient our ad dollars are. And now we have yeah. Emma su- supporting the brand, right? And posting about the brand. So we're way more efficient than most brands are in terms of our media spend, but right. it still impacted us relatively. And so thinking about, okay, how do we be more creative? How do we leverage different channels? Do we go on podcasts? Do we have a different type of creative, right? Do we go mm-hmm. to different platforms to become more efficient? So that was a, a big challenge that we've had to face over the course of the past year. I think the other big thing is we're turning the ship in terms of like in terms of where our focus is for downstream. So again, we've been D to C, we're going to retail, and that just looks very, very different. So for example, when I joined the company, the bags didn't have UPCs on them, which is fine if you're selling at D to C. If you're selling in retail, the register needs to scan something, right? And so that's just sort of one small example of the entire supply chain, both upstream, right, in terms of how it's packaged and then downstream in terms of how you actually get it to the consumer needs to be changed. So that's been, our team was really set up and was humming perfectly for online. And we just said, great, now add this whole other layer to it. And they've done a really good job at it, but that's been a big, big challenge. And then fundraising is probably the other biggest one we faced, right? So we were fundraising last year on our series A, right as the market took a huge downturn. Right. So that was a challenge and we we did it. We did it successfully, but it certainly took longer than I think anyone anticipated because so many funds just said, you know what, we're hitting we're hitting the pause button now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had like a lot of companies laying off employees and it was not a great year <laughs> from that perspective. So how much did you guys end up raising and how long did it end up taking compared to what you were assuming in terms of timing and length? We raised $7 million in equity and we tacked on $2 million in debt and probably took about six months. And we, we thought it'd be shorter than that. But again, we had that a huge pause, right? And it was tough because we were growing so fast. We had all these great metrics, but it was really hard because as you said, people were laying off and the whole economy was in a downturn. Yeah. I know it was a struggle for a lot of entrepreneurs trying to fundraise during that time. And six months does not sound too shabby. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Congrats. Thank you. 
When you are talking about debt versus equity, just for those listening, what are you referring mm-hmm. to? And why did you decide to split it that way of 7 million equity, 2 million debt? Yeah. So, you know, equity would be an investment into the company in return for shares. And so that creates dilution, right? And so if, if I own X percent of the company and people invest $7 million, I now own less, right? Right. And then debt is, debt is a loan, right? And so there's no equity given, but it is, you have to pay it back. And yeah. so we, we thought about sort of how much dilution we thought we'd be willing to take at, at the valuation that we were at. And then we wanted to find a partner that could think about how do we fund, how do they fund us to extend the runway a little bit, but also really just for working capital. Right? Mm-hmm. So how do we think about getting debt that will allow us to buy more inventory to manage that order to cash cycle that we talked about, which in, in sort of food and beverage is so critical. It's hard and it's painful to give up equity in order to just hold on to coffee beans for four months <laughs> or to hold on to you know empty bags for three months. And mm-hmm. so we looked for a debt partner for those more asset-based things. And non-dilutive capital is something that I actually don't hear a lot of people talk about, right? It's kind of always lump summed in the big number that everybody ends up raising, I think. And at what point would you advise entrepreneurs that are fundraising to think about taking on debt capital rather than venture? Yeah, I think if you're a fast growing business that is either inventory heavy or AR heavy, accounts receivable heavy, you should really think about getting debt to to fund that, right? Because that's going to keep growing and keep increasing. And, and if you're a seasonal business, it'll flux up and down. And so that's a really helpful way to allow your business to grow, to not have inventory costs or receivables holding periods to put a stop to your growth or to slow down your growth. So there's a lot of partners out there that are, if you're a high growth company, be willing to fund that part of the business for you. What they don't fund are salaries, marketing expenses, admin expenses, And so that's where you've got to bring in and find equity capital for that. Definitely. And so what do you think is something most people don't know about being CEO? And maybe is something that you didn't even really think about or realize very much about the role either. Yeah, I think one of the biggest is just the amount of decisions, right, that people or CEO needs to make in a day. I remember back, and I'm by no means comparing myself to this person, but I remember when Barack Obama was interviewed Right. And he talked about the amount of decisions that he had to make in a day. And he, he said, like, you'll always see me in a blue suit or a gray suit. It's like one less decision I need to make in a day. I won't get decision fatigue and I'll be able to you know, make the more important decisions later. Now, again, I'm not <laughs> I'm not him, but there's just so many decisions that you need to make throughout the day and you can really get fatigued on that. And so I think being able to have your team make those decisions on your behalf is pretty critical. Absolutely. And so as we wrap up here, what is some final advice that you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or CEOs that are tuning in? And what's next for Chamberlain Coffee? Yeah, a couple pieces of advice. One, dig in, learn things from the ground up, understand how it works. Um, like we talked about, I understand how distribution works now because I delivered kegs for a couple of years. You really, you don't need to be an expert in everything, but you need to be able to speak to everything. So really dig in. That's one. Two is ask for help, right? People will give you help. People will give you advice. That's one of the things that's been most helpful for me is the ability to pick up the phone and just say, hey, I don't know what to do here. Help me out. People are more than willing to offer advice. And then I think the last thing is just pay attention to your mental health. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard, right? The enormity of starting a business is huge, right? And it can be all consuming. And so pay attention to your mental health, find an outlet, know when you've reached your limit. It's going to be important because these things aren't one or two years, they're five to 10 years. Yeah. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you got to take care of yourself along the way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was great speaking with you. All right. Nice to talk to you too. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.